Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 108 for May the 8th, 2013. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and I'm here with my dear friend Paul Ducklin. Welcome back, Paul. Hello, Chester. I'm uh, here in lovely, sunny Las Vegas, Nevada at the NetWorld Interop Conference this week, so continuing on with my remote chat chat series. Uh, uh, it's uh, actually not quite as sunny as you might expect. We're actually having thunderstorms. There's this strange wet stuff in, in Nevada, which is a bit odd. Uh, to, to be happening out here. Uh-oh, Chester, you're going to be in real trouble. You mentioned the weather. Oh, <laughs> well, I was just thinking maybe it was like Tim, uh, you know, Sir Tim Berners-Lee's uh, tears uh, being shed over his, uh, his, his beautiful, beautiful creation, the World Wide Web. 20 years old. Yeah, I heard that they brought up the uh, original, original web page, the very first web page ever. Uh... I don't think it's quite the first one. It's nearly the first one. However, unless CERN in Geneva really has got a time machine, as the conspiracy theorists seem to think, uh, and they were able to push Apache back in time, uh, I don't think it was the original web server. Well, I mean, while we're talking of old things, I mean, granted, 20 isn't old in most categories, unless we are talking about something like the interwebs. But there's some interesting uh, crypto stuff going on. I know you posted a contest to Naked Security that I find quite fun. I've been sitting here with a piece of paper and a pencil scribbling away for the last uh, day and a half. Yes, and that's that's more than 70 years ago. Isn't it amazing? It is. And and I mean, maybe you could summarize what uh, what the challenge is, and perhaps we can get some of the chat chat listeners to submit their responses. Yes, uh, if you want to have a look, it's nakedsecurity.sophos.com forward slash British. Just that URL will get you there. Basically, what happened is this chap, he was a sub-lieutenant uh, in the Royal Navy during the Second World War. He was captured by the Nazis at Dunkirk and put in a prisoner of war camp. And eventually, after good behavior, he was allowed to write regular letters home. And he wrote letters to his dad about how they'd set up a vegetable patch, usual stuff that you would expect a prisoner to write. But in fact, a branch of military intelligence I hadn't heard of before, MI9, had actually briefed uh, a num many officers a mechanism for encoding subtexts, steganography as we'd call it today, uh, encoding secret messages into these letters. And it suddenly dawned on his son, who has them now as memoirs, he's a chancellor at Plymouth University, hey, Let's see if we can get the messages out after all this time, because obviously MI9 isn't going to tell him whether they actually got the messages. Um, but the information about how the encoding was done is now public, and uh, a prof of mathematics at Plymouth University was able to decode at least one of the messages and find out, yes, he was actually sending usable situation intelligence back home in letters about vegetable gardens. So I set a little challenge based on how the algorithm works with a wartime message. And the the contest is you have to come up with a you have to come up with a fifty two word paragraph which contains fifteen words of military intelligence inside it. Um, it's actually a lot of fun and a lot harder than you think. It is a lot of fun, and I I hope the chat chat listeners uh, give it a go because we've been getting some entertaining responses, of course, and and uh, why not have a bit of fun. So that's an interesting segue, Paul, into, you know, software potentially doing things that you don't expect it to do. I mean, surprises are almost always a bad thing, whether it's, uh, you know, in, in changes in your cryptographic algorithm or whether it's in software. And in this case, it turns out there's a, a company in the, in the computer gaming industry that 
slipped some Bitcoin generating code into uh, their software surreptitiously and were using people who play the game's computing power to generate Bitcoins. Uh, yes, and there's an even bigger irony than that. The company's reputation was built on the fact that the clients they make you load before you play games like Counter-Strike online is an anti-cheat client. And it's designed to make the games more fun between players because you know that the other guy probably isn't running some kind of bot and that you'll probably have a level playing field. And it is a great irony that they figured, hey, this anti-cheat client, it has to do an awful lot of fancy things, just like an antivirus or an intrusion prevention system would. And most gamers have got a GPU. If it's doing 50 things that the person doesn't know about but trusts, what if we do bitcoins on the side? Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah, it, it, this isn't the first time we've heard of these types of things, not just bitcoin generation, but you know, when we start looking at uh, mobile applications, say, on iPhone or Android, and see that you know, in the background, these applications are, are calling home with your address book. Or, I mean, you know, organizations have been trying to find ways of monetizing their software in unexpected ways or perhaps ways that the user that loaded that software may not be aware of uh, that, that's either buried in the fine print or is simply, simply hidden. I mean, is this mean we should, I mean, to, to a degree, it's making me not trust proprietary software to a degree. I mean, without, if it's not open source, how can I be sure? what something's going to do to my computer. Well, Chester, even with open source software, actually reviewing the entire thing and putting everything into perspective is still a pretty big ask. So even if you're a believer in the adage that with many eyes, all bugs are shallow, it's still a huge deal to trust something only on the basis of your own ability to analyze it. Yes, it's a huge job to decide whether you'll put your faith in software only doing what the person claims. And it's an even bigger ask to decide whether the way they've claimed what it will do is satisfactory. As you said earlier, is there a bit of small print that actually says, will you agree to all these terms and any terms that we might slip in in the future that will notify you in a dialog box that you'll probably click through? Yeah, I mean, well, and I guess this reminds me of a little bit of, you know, there's liability issues uh, that impact the next story as well. I mean, these all these embedded internet-enabled devices that we're seeing now, baby monitors, uh, video cameras, video, you know, webcams that allow you to watch your house when you're away. I, I saw you wrote a story about some research that Core Security did on this. The key culprit there was a particular range of D-Link internet cameras what do people use these for? Security cameras, they're absolutely ideal for it. And it turns out that some of the errors in this code were really the sort of errors that you would have hoped wouldn't have been made in the 1980s, let alone in the 2010s. Uh, we're talking about URLs that were not authenticated at all, that gave direct access to the video stream. And if that wasn't enough, there was a service listening there for you to connect to that actually had a hard-coded password. And because we've been talking about irony a lot today, the password purists will love the fact that this password included special characters. It wasn't just letters and digits. It was, in fact, question mark star. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, actually, I noticed you, you mentioned a uh, directory traversal vulnerability. I mean, there was a, there was a whole handful of that things. That was another that... brand of camera. 
So the, the point is there were an absolute raft of vulnerabilities that came out quite quickly. Again, that irony that these are devices that are actually used to implement physical security that actually don't do computer security correctly in a way that doesn't just violate security, it causes all sorts of privacy crises as well. And the sort of programming errors that surely we got past years and years and years ago, hard-coded passwords, two characters long, absolutely unprotected, unauthenticated access directly to the video stream. Yeah, and unfortunately, I mean, this is common. I mean, every time I see something that says that it's internet-enabled, I, I cringe. And I guess the problem here is that this, this particular range of cameras that Core Security looked at, the reason they looked at them was that they're not just cameras that you can also use as cameras, like a little point-and-shoot still camera. They're designed to be internet cameras. You're supposed to plug them in and forget about them. And the problem with that set-and-forget mentality is it also means, and this isn't so much the fault of the vendors now, it's actually the fault of people who are buying these devices and deploying them, is they kind of get forgotten when it comes to patching and upgrades and updates. We've seen, and I think talked about it before on the chat chat, exactly the same sort of problem with printers, which is another device which creates all kinds of privacy problems if you let the wrong sort of person see the information that's coming out there. Yeah, especially as some of these printers now that have hard disks in them and store copies of documents for extended periods of time and people don't even realize they're there. And I mean, personally, I, I have a, a recurring calendar invite uh, in my personal calendar every six months with a list of things that I should check. Unfortunately, I guess most people aren't doing that, but it's a good habit, just like testing the smoke alarm. I wanted to bring up uh, actually two stories and one to wrap up this week's chat chat. There was a, the Associated Press's Twitter account, at AP, uh, was hacked. And also Living Social, a, a group buy website that allows people to get discounts and things like this, uh, had 50 million password hashes lost. And to me, these stories kind of tie together a little bit, just in general, back to password security and, and the recent techno that you and I did on two-factor authentication. Uh, obviously, whatever happened at the AP, allegedly it was a phishing attack perhaps, would have been likely thwarted by something like two-factor authentication that we know Twitter uh, has been working on. In fact, Twitter released a statement saying that they uh, were um, going to be releasing two-factor for high-profile test accounts, which presumably would be the ones with the little blue tick mark next to them very soon now. So hopefully very soon in internet time means a matter of a week or two. We'll, we'll see what happens. But then Living Social lost all these hashes. And, you know, what's the purpose? Like, if hashes are leaked, you know, do I need to change my password? What, what does hashing really accomplish in a situation like this? At least people's passwords weren't leaked, right? Yes, we've discussed this before, haven't we? The idea that you don't store the plain text of the password, you store a salted and hashed version, and hopefully you use a salting and hashing system, like, say, Bcrypt, which is actually computationally complicated enough that it doesn't slow down real authentications that badly, but it does make life harder from guys who steal hashes and try and do a dictionary or a brute force attack. But unfortunately, in some cases, you just get the feeling that the world is kind of accepting the salting and hashing of passwords and other non-plain text storage technologies based on cryptography as an excuse for being hacked in the first place. My point is that, you know, as a customer of Living Social, if you're a customer of theirs, 
Hashing doesn't mean that your password is necessarily safe. What it really is doing is it's buying time. Uh, if, the, if the criminals who stole the hashes are determined, they may be able to still break them, especially if you uh, use a common password. You know, we often see, even if they're hashed, that attackers will take the 100 most common passwords and then actually hash them with the salt uh, to see if they match you know, any of the accounts. Because computationally, you can do that quite quickly to see if anyone's using password123 or living social or kittens or princess or whatever it might be. And just in case anyone is under any misapprehension about modern dictionary attacks, you don't have to start with aardvark and end with Zimbabwe. You, you know, going through the dictionary in any strict order, the more regular and easily guessed your password is, the earlier it's going to come up in the automatically generated guessing lists. So Although having a complex password in this case really only means that the crooks are going to catch the other guys first, it's still worthwhile doing. Anything that makes it harder for the bad guys is good for everybody. I, I agree. So that concludes Software Security Chat Chat 108. As always, for the latest security news, visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. Chester, haven't you forgotten something? Uh, kind of. I mean, I wasn't going to necessarily mention it since I was there and I, re I received the awards and everything, but perhaps you might want to fill in the listeners. So should I say it? Sure, head. go ahead. We're proud to announce that Naked Security got two awards at the uh, European Security Blogger Awards. We got Best Corporate Security Blog, and most gratifyingly, we were actually awarded the Best Overall Security Blog. Part of the reason for our success is you, the listeners to the Chat Chat, and our readers on Naked Security, coming up with ideas, asking us questions. So if you've got anything you want to bring to our attention that you think you'd like us to write about, tips at sophos.com. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, for the latest podcasts, you can visit podcasts.sophos.com or subscribe to our RSS feed, or even, if you like, on iTunes if you're an Apple user. And until next time. Stay secure.